August 16, 2012. 3,000 rock drillers at a platinum mine in Maracana, South Africa, are encamped on a large rock outcropping. They've been here for six days, striking for a pay raise. Lawnman, a British mining concern, and one of the biggest platinum producers in the world, won't budge. And over the past week, skirmishes between miners and police have resulted in deaths on both sides. Tensions run high. On this day, state police have received an order to disband the strike. Hundreds of officers in armored cars and full tactical gear surround the miners, corralling them into a small area. They keep a watchful eye as a small group of men from the encampment slowly approach the police line. Exactly what happens next is still a matter of controversy. Some of the men in the smaller group have spears and machetes. It's possible a few have guns. A shot is fired, then chaos. The miners start running toward the police. The police fire live ammunition into the group. Maybe the miners charged the police. Maybe they were fleeing tear gas and rubber bullets. Both arguments will be made. But when the dust settles, 34 miners are dead and more than 70 are injured. Half of the dead were in the group that approached the police. The other half are found back on the rock outcropping, apparently shot at close range during the chaos. What began six days prior as a peaceful strike for better wages ends in bloodshed. It's not entirely clear what's happened at the mine today because the police seem to have opened fire on a defiant crowd of thousands of miners who've been striking for a week now. This, this, this strike has cost at least 10 lives in the last week alone. And today there are reports that they were sent on board the sea. Two years later and 10,000 miles away, it's Easter Sunday in Ludlow, Colorado, about two hours south of Colorado Springs. 150 or so people gather under a small pavilion next to a stretch of railroad tracks that run past low mesas that wash out into a high desert full of nothing but rabbit brush and chain choya. The crowd stands facing a small stage where several bearded priests in long white robes swing censers, pass out candles, and lead the congregants through the traditional Greek Orthodox service of Pascha. Commemorating our most holy, pure, most blessed, and glorious lady. Today is April 20th, 2014. It's Easter, but that's not why these people made the trip to this little piece of nowhere. A hundred years ago, on this day, in this spot, Striking coal miners, not unlike those at Maracana, fought a pitched battle with mine guards and Colorado National Guardsmen. For more than six months before that, 1,200 miners and their families lived in tents on this land, waiting for their coal company employers to recognize their demands. They endured a brutal winter here. They celebrated Christmas and Easter here. And on April 20th, 1914, the Monday after Easter, they took up arms here. And it was here, in a storage cellar beneath one of those tents, that 11 children and two women, hiding from the violence, suffocated to death as members of the Colorado National Guard torched the tent colony above them. 
All told, 18 people were killed in what would come to be known as the Ludlow Massacre, one of the most pivotal events in the history of the American labor movement. This is why these people have made the trip to this little stretch of nowhere, to remember. This is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadow of America's mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. In this episode, we retell the story of the Ludlow Massacre. It was an event that shocked the world in its day, but in the centuries since, it's lost its purchase in the American historical imagination. It's a complicated tale, as much about immigration and the American dream as it is about Gilded Age labor exploitation and the growing pains of America's industrial economy. But a hundred years later, it's a story which still resonates in surprising ways, both here in the U.S. and in new centers of industry around the world. Former Colorado poet laureate David Mason will help us tell the story. His epic verse novel, Ludlow, recounts the events of the Colorado Coalfield strike of 1914 through the life of a fictional character named Louisa Mole. Shot firers filed in after the diggers left and found the marked drills for their measured shot. As daylight died, the men were blasting deep for the next day's cuts of coal. Louisa waited in the twilight babble of miners bedding down, some Mexican like her late mother, some filling the night with songs in Welsh, Italian. Some were Greek and talked of fighting wars against the Turks and made bouzouki strings and liras sing. Their workers' fingers nimble when they played in high, dry air of a Colorado camp. But some nights she could barely hear the life around her, hauling water from the creek and pouring off the clearer part for drinking. Her heart held steady till explosions came from gaping mines uphill. Dull, thudding sounds like the push of air a man's torso made when other men lit into him with fists. The mesa sounded like a beaten man, pinned down and beaten senseless in the night, the way it sometimes happened to a scab or union organizer or a man brought in from far away to agitate. No one who grew up as Luisa had, in coal camps from Trinidad to Pueblo, watching the typhoid rake through families, could say she'd never seen a beaten man. The mines made widows, too, when timbermen or diggers deep inside the earth cut through to gas and lanterns set it off, or when the pillared chambers fell. You heard a slump within, and some poor digger ran out choking. There was thirty boys still trapped in the seam. And some days all you'd see was bodies carted down the hill and bosses counting heads. Coal mining began in the very early years following the American conquest of Colorado, but it was really the extension of railroad networks that gave the industry a major boost because Western railroads were, were heavily dependent on, on coal. This is Thomas Andrews, professor of history at University of Colorado, Denver, and author of Killing for Coal. By the late 19th century, says Andrews, use of coal had expanded well beyond the railroads. 
The forests of the West had been decimated, and coal replaced wood as the primary source of fuel in Colorado. Coal was powering virtually all of the major industries in the state, from hard rock mining to steel making to um, even you know farming. I mean, most of the sugar beet factories out on the Eastern Plains actually burned pretty large quantities of coal and coke. Residential and business customers also used a lot of coal to heat their homes and fuel, um, cook stoves and that sort of thing. But the coal on which the state's economy depended came at a cost. Mining in Colorado was extremely dangerous. As historian Scott Martell notes in his book, Blood Passion, the unstable geological formations surrounding the coal seams of southern Colorado mines made them particularly unsafe. As of 1912, there were roughly seven deaths per thousand coal mine employees in Colorado versus the approximately three deaths per thousand national average. Here's Martell. Uh, there were among the deadliest mines in the country. The safety record was atrocious. The state only had two or three mine inspectors in the entire state. So, you know, the, the mine managers were pretty much offering their own fiefdoms. It was really an, an oppressive um, situation in which the coal miners were working. Not surprisingly, these conditions created tension between miners and their employers. Thomas Andrews. There was a really long history of, of labor conflict in the Southern Colorado coal fields. I mean, coal miners started striking pretty much as soon as the industry got its legs underneath it. So there were labor disputes going back into the early 1870s. With each strike, mine owners developed new tactics to minimize unrest. What the coal companies learned is that unionism and striking basically succeeded almost everywhere except for in so-called closed camps, and these were company towns. In the late 1800s, Colorado coal producers built company towns like never before. Colorado Fuel and Iron, or CFNI, the largest coal producer in the state at the time, designed their towns to control almost every aspect of miners' lives. The companies didn't just own the coal mines. They also owned workers' housing. They owned the stores that workers could shop in. They owned the commissary or the place where the casinos even. Robin Muncy, associate professor of history at University of Maryland. They owned the school. They paid the school teacher. They uh, often paid the police force. They controlled the election of officials, including judges and um, sheriffs. So in those coal camps, in the South especially, miners were really living under conditions that didn't allow them even the most fundamental rights of democratic citizenship. You know, they didn't have the right of assembly or even of free speech. The kids were not taught in a, a public school where the school teachers could teach what they thought was important. The teachers were employed by the coal mine owners. So they're living in conditions that um, many Americans, once they had their focus trained on those conditions, considered to be, sometimes they called it, feudal, un-American, certainly undemocratic. Here's Thomas Andrews again. CF and I was building a, a pretty different kind of company town. It was much more about imposing power on workers than it was about you know, sort of serving workers' interests. I mean, it's important to recognize some nuance there. I mean, before these new company towns were built, a lot of workers were living in what we would recognize as, you know, seriously substandard housing. There were housing shortages. There wasn't much of a private sector. And, you know, at this point, there were very few social services to speak of anywhere in Colorado. So the earlier mining camps 
Egypt had been pretty, you know, pretty hard scrabble places. And so there were certainly elements within CFNI who who really believed that they were doing right by by the workers. But, says Andrews, whether or not the camps were nicer, the mine operators had greater control. When strikes erupted, company towns were were easy to militarize. Once workers lived in company housing, they were subject to eviction on very short notice should they go out on strike. I mean, this was part of their lease that they could be evicted in, you know, 48 or I think 72 hours was the more common window. Along with the building of closed company-owned towns, Colorado Fuel and Iron employed other controversial labor management strategies. The Southern Colorado coal field was a destination for immigrants from across the world, and coal companies tried to use this diversity to their advantage. Rosemary Foyer, associate professor of history at Northern Illinois University, explains. The target in the mining camps was actually more diversity. The mining managers had really innovated this idea of mixing, what they called it mixed-race employment strategy. In those times, that meant not just black and white, but a range of um, racial categorizations that we would associate now with like a eugenics strategy. And they would have labeled um, Southern and Eastern European races as among the inferior races. So their strategy for keeping strikes and managing labor was to bring in a more diverse working class of people in their minds. And in fact, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company sociology department was touted as one of the leading sources of managerial strategy in regard to this mixed-race employment strategy. One of those Eastern European workers who would come to be a central figure in the Ludlow saga was a Greek immigrant named Louis Tikus. Louis. Louis the Greek who did not go to war, who drifted through another day of making coffee, talking, selling sweets and reading newspapers for immigrants, tales of strikes in Utah copper mines, gun-toting Cretans opened fire at scabs. Dimitri came, but took no coffee, held a paper he had brought for Louis to read. This says you have a job at the Frederick Mine, Weld County, Louis said. They pay your train. That's what they told me, said Dimitris. Tools and housing for all workers who break the strike. Once you get in, they keep you safe from unions, let you earn your money. Nothing to spend it on up there. You save the wages and you buy your passage home. Really, very little is known of Ticus, but you can flesh out his biography by looking at immigrants uh, from Greece similar to him. This is Zeus Papanicholas, author of the book Buried Unsung, Louis Tikas and the Ludlow Massacre. He was born in 1880 in a small town called Lutka on the island of Crete. And uh, you have to remember that in 1899, Crete itself had a revolution that, that freed them from the, the Turkish occupation. And so one of the things that because had and all Cretans had in their background was a sense of revolution and uh, revolutionary daring do, and the Cretans had a long, long tradition of that kind of machismo. Tikus wound up in Denver in 1906 at the age of 24 and owned a Greek coffee house on Market Street. These coffee houses were important to the Greeks because 
they were the meeting places of Greek men. At that time, very few Greek women were in the United States. The men would gather in the coffee houses, they would tell stories, they'd sing, they'd play cards. But they were also post offices where you could communicate with other Greeks. And this was a place where scabs were recruited because the Greeks went through this uh, kind of cycle that all immigrants in the United States uh, seem to go through. They started out their industrial lives as strike breakers, breaking the strikes of the immigrant group that had come before them and had been unionized. And in fact, Ticus himself ended up as a scab in the northern coal fields and very quickly turned into a union organizer and uh, led a walkout in 1912 in November. And after that, he became a, pretty much a full-time union translator and organizer among the Greeks in Colorado. Tikas would eventually get sent to the southern Colorado coal fields. There, John Lawson, a charismatic union organizer, had already been rabble-rousing against CF&I and its majority shareholder, John D. Rockefeller Jr. They want you tribes of miners to say thanks for the table scraps they give of their good hearts. But men, these rich rats are getting fatter daily on your sweat, your sweetheart's hunger. Now's the time for an alternative to pissing your days in someone else's dirt. Collar loose, sleeves rolled, big hands on hips, Lawson paced, then looked at Lefty and too tall. You blasting crews take home a wage. It's scrip, but it's pay by the job. What's a digger get? He's got a weight man tagging every ton he wheels out. Coal, not slag. He's got to pick the bony from the coal. That's unpaid dead work. And then there's timbers and props to make it safe. No pay for that, so a man just timbers less, with one result. More dead dagos and japs. And what mine owner ever cared for them? He thumped his chest. We're here to say a Jap's as good as a Mexican Dago Greek, and they're all as good as any Rockefeller. We want a union. We want an eight-hour day and the free choice of where to spend cash wages and fair pay for dead work. We only ask what's ours, but if it's war the company wants, we'll find a good use for your dynamite. By the summer of 1913, it was clear to the United Mine Workers of America that Southern Colorado would be the next major battleground in the fight for better working and living conditions. They appointed a committee to head up negotiations with the major coal mine operators in the state. They had a list of seven demands. Um, and, of course, the first one was recognition of the union, which was also the sticking point. Karen Larkin, curator of anthropology at University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and a member of the Colorado Coalfield War Archaeology Project. They wanted an eight-hour workday, which was on the Colorado books at the time, but was not enforced. Most men went into the mines in the morning before the sun came up, and they didn't come out of the mines until 12, 15 hours later, once the sun had gone down. So they'd spent their entire daytime under the ground in the dark. Um, they wanted what they called payment for dead work, and so the miners were paid by the amount of coal that they actually brought out. 
um, and they were paid by the ton of coal. And so all the work that led up to actually extracting the coal, which would be digging out the tunnels and shoring them up and laying the track and doing all of that stuff, was not paid work. And so they wanted payment for dead work. They also wanted a 10% increase in wages. They wanted the ability to shop in any store and visit any doctor um, and go to any school. Those were all regulated by the company at the time. Um, and then they also wanted to be able to elect a check weightman. So when the coal carts came um, to the weightman, the weightman was hired by the company and a lot of the miners felt that they were being cheated at the scales and so they wanted to be able to hire somebody to check that weightman's work and make sure that they weren't being cheated. But the coal companies refused to meet with union representatives. In mid-September, the union organized a convention in the town of Trinidad to rally support. There, professional agitator Mary Harris Jones, better known as Mother Jones, gave a fiery speech to a crowd of disgruntled miners. She heard the lady they called Mother Jones, like someone's Irish granny, though she cursed and said that cursing was a poor man's prayer. This is America, my friends. No dagos, none of the names they call you at the mine. Once they let you in, you are American. Fear is the greatest foe you've got. Don't fear. Liberty is not dead. She's only resting, and it's time for us to wake her up, my boys. I don't fear anybody. I'm going to tell the governor of Colorado. I'm going to stay right here, and by God, we will win. If you boys are too cowardly to fight, there's women enough to come and beat the hell out of you. So strike, boys, and stay with it. There were a lot of rumors that a strike was coming in the summer of 1913. Thomas Andrews. You know, many people are, are sort of seeing the writing on the wall. They're, they're sensing the mood. They're fairly confident that, that a strike is going to begin. And so then what you see is, you know, I mean, there's, there were upwards of 10,000 coal miners in southern Colorado. And then you add to that their dependents. You're talking about tens of thousands of people who are expecting to be out of work. They don't know what kind of provision the union's going to make for them. And so you see this kind of scramble. The miners, once they notified the company that they were going to strike, all of them were evicted from their house. Bob Butero, organizing director for Region 4 of the United Mine Workers of America. They were just to take their possessions and leave the coal camps, and this was men, women, and children. And so um, what the union did, with the help of other labor unions, and they sought out some property, and the local farmers and ranchers uh, plotted out so much land, and then they, they formed what they called tent colonies down there. And um, they went ahead and erected the tents. They assigned the tents to the different miners and their families. They, they basically constructed a city. And so began the Southern Colorado Coalfield Strike. On September 23, 1913, 9,000 miners and their families left their company-owned homes. They trudged through the mud and the rain to Union tent colonies across southern Colorado. Ludlow was the largest, with 500 miners plus their families, a total of 1,200 displaced people. The Ludlow camp sat on a plot of land leased from local ranchers. It was bounded to the north by an arroyo, and to the west by the Colorado and Southern Railway, the main thoroughfare for scabs and company men heading to the mines from Denver. Settling in for a long strike, the miners made themselves at home in the tent colonies. They excavated cellars beneath many of the tents, installing wood-burning stoves, 
Among other things, there was a sanitation department and a police force. So Louis set to work, and others followed. In days, the tents arrived, the weather turned, the colony at Ludlow almost thrived beneath the watchful eyes of Baldwin Feltz and other guards who gathered out of range. Work parties went in groups to ward off beatings, and in the meeting tent, John Lawson had an upright piano moved for sing-alongs. 1,200 people lived here now, largest of the strike camps in the southern coal fields. When ground dried, the men paced out a diamond for baseball games. Women strung laundry lines between the tents where 20 languages were spoken. Louis Ticas made his way, not only speaking for the Greeks, but also welcoming folk from every fatherland. But while the miners and their families worked to establish some semblance of normalcy in the tent colony, the threat of violence was never far from mind. By the end of the first week of the strike, one miner had disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Then a CFNI company marshal got killed in a scrap with a group of strikers in the nearby town of Segundo. Both sides in the conflict saw barbarism and ruthlessness in the other, and both the miners and the company guardsmen intended to stand their ground. As Rosemary Foyer points out, from the very beginning there was more at stake in this battle than marginal improvements in working conditions and higher wages. This was as true for the miners and union men as it was for management and shareholders at Colorado Fuel and Iron. In a larger context, this was a struggle for the soul of the United Mine Workers Union and a strategy that suggested that struggle and uniting across skill and ethnic and racial divisions was the way to contest capital. They're speaking a language that completely frightened capitalists. You know, the use of the term capitalist and by the um, agitators, the defining of this as a battle between capital and labor was part of the discourse of the time. And I don't think it's unfair to say that workers really um, did respond to that kind of language. It's important to keep in mind that it's 1913. The Russian Revolution is only four years away. Karl Marx's assessment that a capitalist economy is fundamentally exploitative has seeped into popular discourse around the world. For both workers and their employers, there is an acute sense that the interests of labor and capital will always be at odds. Employers' whole design was completely in line with Marxist theory, which is we're going to divide you and conquer you in order to extract profits from that division. So there's nobody more in line with Marxist thinking than capitalists um, like the CFI, like Rockefeller, who saw this, like, they thought, we cannot even go to arbitration. We couldn't have anybody come and arbitrate this or look at this because that would be given in. And workers have no boundaries to what they'll demand next. They never thought of it as, you know, it would be wise for us to just give a few pennies more. They thought to give in to the union was to give in to a working class that had limitless demands. And I'm not sure that they were mistaken there. You know, uh, that there was a, a chance that this uh, movement would develop into one that was um, really did develop by World War One, which is nationalization of the railroads, nationalization of the mines, were two demands from the two largest unions in the country. Against this backdrop of ideological conflict, both sides in the strike sought to demonstrate their resolve. 
On the side of the striking miners, the full material backing of the United Mine Workers of America meant that the tent colonies could be outfitted for the long haul. For their part, Colorado Fuel and Iron hired the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Baldwin Feltz was a paramilitary outfit known at the time for its violent dealings with union leaders in the coal fields of West Virginia. Their presence signaled that management would sooner fight than negotiate with the UMWA. Violence and posturing plagued the first month of the strike. In an attempt to establish order, Colorado Governor Elias Ammons sent in troops from the Colorado National Guard. They were led by General John Chase, a portly weekend warrior with a gray handlebar mustache. Here's Major Adam Morgan, historian for the Colorado National Guard. When the Colorado National Guard first arrived on scene, 28 or 29 October of 1913, they were initially welcomed by the strikers. I think the strikers went out of their way to at least give a feeling of good measure and kind of extend the first hand in a handshake towards the Colorado National Guard. And so that first week, they kind of had announced, we're going to disarm the coal operators, we're going to disarm the strikers, and then the killing's going to stop. Uh, both the striking miners and the coal operators weren't forthcoming with uh, all the weapons uh, right away. So it was, it was very difficult uh, for the guard to really come in and establish that presence, that authoritative presence. And so they were kind of immediately playing catch up. The presence of the National Guard just added to the tension. Despite earlier assurances from the governor to the contrary, guardsmen were soon being used to escort strike breakers to the mines, effectively undermining the strikers' main source of leverage. And there were other problems as well. Here's Scott Martell again, author of Blood Passion. Governor Ammons uh, was persuaded that it was necessary to send in the National Guard uh, to keep the peace. Uh, in reality, the National Guard went in to break the strike, you know, to, to keep the production going, uh, protect the strike breakers, and you know, keep the strikers at a distance from the mines. And th that pretty quickly turned sour. Um, the state was in bad budget trouble. Uh, a bunch of the National Guardsmen uh, walked back, walked off their jobs, and went back home because they were getting paid. Uh, the coal operators then stepped up and began paying the salaries of the National Guard Guardsmen and also began replenishing the ranks of the Guardsmen with the mine guards. Though there was never a formal declaration, de facto martial law was established across southern Colorado. General Chase and his men used their power to detain suspected agitators and union leaders without formal charges. Dozens of strikers and union men were arrested, but it was the detention of Mother Jones without trial or warrant that caused the greatest stir. Her speech in Trinidad at the outset of the strike had galvanized the miners, and she'd made several trips back to the southern Colorado coal fields to fan the flames as the strike progressed. Recognizing the influence that Jones wielded, General Chase had been trying to banish her from the southern Colorado coal field since the strike began. After several failed attempts, Chase's men finally apprehended Jones at a hotel in the early morning hours of January 12, 1914. She was detained at the San Rafael Hospital in Trinidad. The arrest of this matronly septuagenarian immediately sparked an outcry among miners, their wives, and progressive commentators around the country. After a week, miners and women in the camps organized a march to demand Jones's release. General Chase reluctantly allowed the demonstration with the caveat that protesters not try to reach the hospital where Mother Jones was being held. Some in the crowd were dressed in Sunday clothes with feathered hats, and there were men and boys mixing among the women, men and boys watching from the roof of the white front bar. Some of the signs said, God bless Mother Jones. Others taunted the sheriff's men and soldiers. Some women carried babies, 
Some had children dogging their footsteps. They became a column marching together up Commercial Street. The marchers quickly turned defiant as they pushed beyond General Chase's line in the sand. Ladies, shouted General Chase, and ladies, I must insist you halt this masquerade. And ladies, he said again, I'm in charge by order of Governor Ammons. I am here to keep the peace. Do not try my patience. Turn back, or we will have to make arrests. The crowd mind listened, paused, and someone shouted, Ladies! And the crowd was loud in laughter, and the general blushed. Keep going for Mother Jones, someone said. And on they went. Louisa saw the horse of General Chase close up and went to touch it, thinking only that it looked afraid, and saw the general staring down at her as if she were the one who'd shouted back and heard him blustering, Don't pass! Don't pass! His sword drawn, he was shouting now, Get back! And seemed to swing at her, but that was crazy. Why would anyone draw swords in Trinidad? Yes, it flashed in air above her, and his mustache flared with rage. His horse reared, someone screamed, and down went Chase, rattling flat and cursing on the bricks. Louisa lowered her shielding arms and felt the crowd mind turn in wonder at this sight. The general was down. Then up, he stood, wiping his hat from the street, and shouted, did he really? Ride them down, ride down the women, make them get back. Did he though? Did she hear it? She would ask these questions later on in jail. But now she saw him mount and wheel his horse and saw the strangest sight of all, a cavalry charge in downtown Trinidad. Men swinging the flats of their swords at signs, at women's hats, at air above their heads, the crowd mind shifting from a laugh to fear and people scattering down Maine. Though no one was killed or seriously injured during the women's march, the image of National Guardsmen swinging swords at women and children dressed in their Sunday best proved a persuasive piece of propaganda for the Union and strikers. The National Guard was already suffering from a major lack of credibility, and the women's march only further discredited them in the eyes of the strikers. As winter slowly gave way to spring, the situation continued to deteriorate. Violence flared, funding for National Guardsmen fell short, and negotiations went nowhere. The conflict became increasingly polarized, with the Union striking miners and their families on one side, and mine guards, the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, and the National Guard on the other. Something had to give. Here's Thomas Andrews. By the early morning of April 20th, you had two groups of people who were primed for conflict, who were both deeply, deeply afraid of their opponents. So the strikers are afraid. Um, you know, they're looking around at the militiamen who are still left, and they recognize a lot of them as former mine guards. Um, these aren't the, you know, these aren't the farm boys and clerks who had shown up in October, who they, whose arrival they celebrated. These were these were men who were clearly on CFNI's side. Um, so, you know, I mean, they're they're afraid. Uh, meanwhile, the militia, they're looking around, and you know, I mean, there's there's what 39 guys supposedly guarding a colony of, you know, upwards of a thousand people. Um, they know that the strikers have not handed over all their weapons. So there's considerable fear on both sides. Major Adam Morgan, Colorado National Guard historian. 
So on April 20th, 1914, uh, we're in the latter stages of a drawdown. I think there's 200 Colorado National Guardsmen uh, that are still committed to the Southern Colorado coal fields. 40 of those are within the Ludlow area, so six officers and approximately 34 men. That morning, uh, there's a woman who comes to Major Hamrock. He's a senior officer on the ground, Major Patrick Hamrock uh, of the Colorado National Guard, uh, claiming that her husband is being held within the Ludlow tent colony against his will. He wants to go back to work to the mines and the colony's not letting him go. So Major Hamrock calls to Louis Tikus. Louis Tikus is a very charismatic, effective leader of the striking community at Ludlow. Louis Tikus comes to the train station and meets uh, Major Hamrock and this woman and um, essentially says, okay, at first he says, I don't know who you're talking about exactly. And uh, they finally get it straightened out. While they're getting it straightened out, the Colorado National Guard is deciding whether or not it's going to insert a patrol into the colony to free this man. And in case they do, they start to mobilize um, the machine gun to a place called Water Tank Hill. It's about uh, probably a quarter to a half a mile away from the tent colony itself, uh, but it provides um, ability to see everything that's going on within the tent colony. In response to this movement of the gun and of approximately 30 soldiers, strikers at the tent colony begin to respond to that. They take their rifles and their ammo and start to consolidate to the west of the tent colony into an arroyo uh, over which the train passes. So there's a steel bridge that allows the train to pass and that offers them their cover and concealment. So they start to take up positions there. When Louis Tikus sees this, he's like, I'll handle this. Let me go back and and, uh, control the situation. And he runs back into the tent colony. It's it's so confusing and hazy and and so many different versions of what happens next that it's it's almost impossible to really truthfully, accurately ascertain um, who fired first, who got spooked first. A volley of gunfire. Women and children sought cover wherever they could find it. Soldiers were hit. Miners were hit. Frank Snyder, 11 years old, was struck in the head with a bullet as he fled his tent. As the fighting wore on, the National Guardsmen, led by Lieutenant Carl E. Linderfelt, a brutish man who'd cut his teeth in the bloody Philippine-American War, made their way into the tent colony. Though no one can assign blame with any certainty, what happened next remains undisputed. The tent colony began to burn. And by the time it was done, little was left of the camp but the ghostly outlines of tent sites and a grisly cellar full of 13 corpses, 11 of them children. During the fighting, Fedelina Costa, Patria Valdez, and Mary Petrucci huddled with their children in the small storage cellar beneath the tent. As the fire burned above them, oxygen was sucked from the cellar air and all but Mary Petrucci suffocated. Others were killed in the fighting as well, including Louis Tikus, the much-loved Greek Union man who, along with two other strikers, was shot in the back at close range by militiamen, in what many describe now as an execution. But it was the deaths of the women and children that transformed Ludlow into a rallying cry for progressives and working people across the country. Strike had been national news for a while. I mean, it wasn't as if the massacre kind of came out of the blue. People were aware of this struggle. I mean, it was, you know, the nation's richest family against its largest union. So the massacre, you know, I mean, it, it, 
comes out in the New York Times, the, you know, before any of the Denver papers come out. I mean, letters poured into strike headquarters in Denver from from across the country. People like Upton Sinclair were rallying protests in New York City. I mean, coal miners in Wyoming and Illinois were writing strike leaders in Colorado saying, you know, say the word, we'll be there on the next train and we'll be armed and we're ready to we're ready to fight for the cause. It was a major national news event there for 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 quite a while. The country was spellbound as shock turned to rage in the southern Colorado coal fields. Armed miners headed south from Colorado Springs, Denver, and further to join the fight. The days following the burning of Ludlow, the Ludlow Massacre, as it would soon be dubbed, saw class violence on a level rarely seen in American history. Here's an article from the New York Times. Trinidad, Colorado, April 23rd. 1,000 striking miners today swept over the southern coal fields from Delagua to Rouse, leaving the smoking ruins of eight great coal properties in their wake and adding possibly an additional score to the present death list of 26. They were preparing for battle tonight with 350 militiamen who were being hurried into the war zone from Denver. Another body of strikers... Miners set fire to mines across southern Colorado, killing mine guards, strike breakers, and National Guardsmen in the process. It was essentially a, a display of, of incredible anger and revenge. Scott Martell. It's notable in all the research I was doing, rarely did you find an instance where the strikers were trying to kill people. What they're trying to do is burn down and destroy the coal operators' methods of production. Um, if uh, the scabs and the mine guards and the National Guardsmen who were defending these places died in the process, they weren't particularly concerned about that, but they weren't setting out to kill people. Um, but still, more than 30 people died over those next 10 days. The period following the massacre would come to be known as the Ten Days War. Despite dispatching hundreds of National Guardsmen to quell the violence, Governor Ammons was virtually helpless to stop the much larger numbers of angry miners around the state. There were truces between Union leaders and the National Guard, but they fell apart. Desperate for help, the governor asked President Woodrow Wilson to intervene. After initially refusing, the president eventually agreed to dispatch 500 federal troops to Colorado to put an end to the conflict. Adam Morgan. So when the federal troops arrived, they were seen as a neutral force, but they weren't uh, celebrated. The federal troops disallowed uh, replacement workers uh, on the scene. So again, coal wasn't coming out of the ground. Union representatives were kept off the field. Saloons were all closed, no questions asked. The federal troops came in and really truly cleaned up and made it a very neutral area. After 10 bloody days, the fighting was over and a precarious peace settled over the Colorado coal fields. But the struggle for the right to organize, demand better working conditions, and higher pay would last decades. Each time the mine workers, the strikers, had uh, resorted to violence, that this uh, followed an attack from either the police or the mine security. What is conclusive is that there is evidence which shows the lawmen 
and the police force conspiring together to break the strike. This is Rihad Desai, documentary filmmaker whose most recent film, Miner Shot Down, tells the story of the so-called Marikana Massacre. He's speaking about an event which took place in South Africa in August of 2012, almost a hundred years after the Ludlow Massacre. And yet, while the details and specific circumstances of these two strikes are different, the events at Ludlow and those at Marikana bear undeniable similarities. The refusal of employers to come to the negotiating table, the use of state forces to disband a lawful strike, the back-and-forth violence building to a tragic, horrific moment of bloodshed. In Ludlow, it was coal, the engine of the early 20th century industrial economy. In Maracana, it's platinum, a rare metal used in catalytic converters, found in the engine of every car on the road today. In Ludlow, it was Colorado Fuel and Iron, a company owned by John D. Rockefeller Jr., whose very name conjured images of largesse and East Coast elitism. In Maracana, it's Lawnman, a company based in England, South Africa's one-time colonial occupier. When state police opened fire on striking platinum miners in Maracana, killing 34 and wounding dozens more, people had questions. They still have questions. Who shot first? Was this a willful massacre or a tragic overreaction? But as Rahad Desai points out, beyond the debate about the specific details of the day's tragic events, the Maracana massacre forced even larger, more troubling realizations about the nature of South African society and politics. I think people on the ground, mine workers, your average sort of person saw it very much as a uh, part of the continuity uh, with the old system and a, a, a repressive, brutal state apparatus that was willing to side with those who have power in society and the capitalist class. It was uh, seen as an attack on African dignity. And I think that's why there was so much strike action in the mining sector and people sort of realizing, well, we, you know, this promise of a better life for all isn't coming from these people. They're just enriching themselves. And uh, moreover, shooting us for just demanding higher wages. These larger observations about the relationship between workers and those who wield power over them made just as much sense in the aftermath of the Ludlow massacre as they do today. There's a story that we tell about Ludlow, one which begins with violence and ends with reform. A story in which those who died at Ludlow, the women, the children, the minors, are martyrs to the causes of workplace safety, fair wages, and the right to unionize. And for good reason. Though gains in the short term were mostly nominal, the strike and the Ludlow massacre played a central role in educating people nationwide about the plight of workers. It also helped build support for workers' rights legislation like the Wagner Act, which would eventually become law during the New Deal under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Here's Bob Butero, Region 4 Organizing Director for the United Mine Workers of America. You know, this occurred in, in 1914. The right to organize was never passed till 1935. And um, even though the strike was unsuccessful, these people definitely set the table for not only miners but workers in, in, in numerous industries after that. Their, their efforts, like I said, was a stepping stone and then through other events that happened from, from around that time, 1914 to 1935, there was the passage of the Wagner Act and it, it gave all workers the right to form and join a union. And then also it played a big role in establishing health and safety practices throughout this country. 
But when you see something like the Marakana massacre or the 2012 fire at the Dhaka garment factory in Bangladesh, which killed 117 people in a scene eerily similar to that of the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire of 1911, it's tempting to ask, have we really made progress or have we simply outsourced the problem? Robin Muncie, professor of history at the University of Maryland, says, in effect, both. What, what happened was that there were these awful conditions, exploitive conditions, dangerous conditions in the early 20th century. There were policies put into effect that diminished those uh, horrid conditions. But then capital moved out of the political entity that provided those protections. And when the, the capital wound up in places like Southeast Asia or South Africa, without the kinds of protections that had for a while been in effect and been effective. Those are no longer the case, and once again, we are in the position that we were um, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so if we could, um, as a global community, insist through our trade pacts, for instance, on the kinds of measures that progressives um, and organized labor have known were crucial to the protection of workers uh, since the early 20th century, we wouldn't have to have those fires in Bangladesh. But while policy is certainly part of the equation, it doesn't always go far enough. Almost every country in the world has signed on to a whole bunch of uh, conventions of different sorts or has labor laws that are very progressive or positive towards workers. Here's Richard Freeman, professor of economics at Harvard and director of the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's also the author of the book, Can Labor Standards Improve Under Globalization? And widely recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on the economics of labor. I mean, South Africa has such laws. China has such laws. And so I don't think signing or doing international things of that kind are going to do much. It has to be about enforcement. And ultimately, I, th I think the real power and the, the, the force that really can make a, a, a huge difference, I think, depends upon the uh, business community, say, being pressured by, uh, perhaps by governments, and, uh, but more by our, our own citizens and consumers. Part of that pressure, says Freeman, has to come from consumers in the part of the world where people are buying products made by exploited workers. But it must also come from the workers themselves, as it did in the U.S. 100 years ago. Freeman sees this happening today in China, where a culture of protest is emerging and the government's being forced to recognize the power of workers. And what we now see in China are labor protests breaking out all over the place. The Chinese government now encourages the government-controlled union to be more responsive to workers and be less obedient to uh, the local party chiefs or the government officials or the company officials because they want to prevent you know, mass protests. So labor standards have started to rise in China and they will rise, I think, much more rapidly in the future. It's, it's almost like a, a go back 100 years in the U.S. and you're seeing in China the Industrial Revolution workers fighting to gain their share of the benefits of modern economic growth. But progress aside, the question remains, even if all the current industrial labor markets, China, Bangladesh, India, Thailand, etc., could eradicate the most exploitative working conditions from their economies, won't there always be somewhere else that producers can go to make things on the cheap? Or could there come a time when every nation in the world has advanced past the point of allowing, either tacitly or explicitly, workers to be unfairly treated by their employers? 
A time when people everywhere make a living wage, work sane hours, have reasonable protections on the job. Richard Freeman thinks it's a toss-up. I see that as one uh, possible and not unlikely outcome. But I, I also see the possibility that we're entering a period when we'll look more like a feudalistic society or the small number of super rich people at the top and everybody else kind of struggling along. But I, So I don't think this is a, uh, is a slam dunk that the world is going to get better for workers. I think there's a reasonable chance that there are enough people who care, there's enough good people in the business community, and there are workers who can indeed you know, organize and protest. And those pressures will push the world in, in a positive direction. So I don't, I don't see any sort of Marxist, you know, kind of situation uh, occurring. I think generally things will get, will get better, but it's not going to be without a, a lot of struggle. Commemorating our most holy, pure, most blessed, and glorious lady in the For those commemorating the Ludlow Massacre a hundred years later, that struggle is still very much alive, even here in the United States. And for Zeus Papa Nicholas, author of Buried Unsung, the simple act of remembering is part of that struggle. I'll tell you a little story. I once went to hear a talk by a woman who was given the job of trying to organize engineers in Silicon Valley. She said, this is what happens when you go to a meeting of engineers. You say to them, gee, you know, wouldn't it be great if we were able, instead of having to negotiate the terms of your contract individually, you had some kind of unified approach, and you had a unified approach to, say, your health care benefits, your retirement, the terms of your service. She says, and you're watching these engineers, they're all nodding their heads saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You say, well, you know, actually we have such a method. It's called a union. And immediately everyone turns white, and that is the end of the conversation. I think that unions have been beaten down by a lot of bad press, some of which they have legitimately earned, but a lot of it is just ideologically based, and also by just the shifts in the way America makes its money and, and distributes it. And I hope that these stories from the past can serve not as templates because, you know, those days are, are pretty much gone uh, of that kind of industry in America, but inspiring people to think creatively about how they can organize, protect their jobs, get their benefits. Uh, one of the things that I've always been moved by, uh, you go out the side of the Ludlow Massacre and there's a little waterproof box and you open the lid and you find inside the guest book and you look through the guest book and it's filled with the names of people who have comments like, I never learned this in school. Why didn't I learn about this in school? And often these names are followed by someone union affiliation. And these union members themselves don't know their history and it, and it inspires them uh, and encourages them. So uh, for me, that's how you have to do history as something that uh, we can learn from and bring it right into the present.
Many thanks to David Mason, whose verse novel Ludlow is available in paperback from Red Hen Press and can be streamed at our website, krcc.org. Thanks to our assistant, Amelia Whitmer, and to our amazing interns, Han Sales and Lauren Antonoff. Thanks also to Alex Koshak of the bands Charioteer, Riffo, and Eros and the Eschaton. He composed the score for this episode. And to Mark Arnest, who composed the classical score Ludlow that accompanies David Mason's poem. You can listen to this episode again at krcc.org, or you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where you can get all the episodes, complete interviews, and extras as they come out. And finally, thanks to Delaney Utterback, general manager of KRCC Radio Colorado College. For Wish We Were Here, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black.